It's happening again. Welcome to Work Cookie, a CBOT podcast. As we broadcast around the world, get bite-sized morsels and tidbits from our industrial organizational psychologists, other experts, and the latest research on the workplace to boost your organization's effectiveness. Sign up now at seabock.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from our experts. Don't forget to check out our corporate career boost recruiter, and even student memberships at seabock.com. Hello, this is Dr. Jeremy Lookaball, workplace communication and negotiation coach, as well as industrial organizational psychology consultant. In addition to seabock.com that you just heard, you can also visit my website at termboot.com. Also on the panel today, we have Trip Braden of Strategic Performance Partners. Trip's an executive coach, leadership team advisor, and the 2021 one of the top 30 global diversity and inclusion influencers. Also, we have Tom Bradshaw, voice and speech coach and a damn good actor at that. He is the leading voice and speech coach for the industrial organizational psychology community. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Today, we're going to be looking at world-class industrial organizational psychologists should be asking themselves. So what questions should we be asking ourselves? Uh, It's a great question for this time because uh, we're living in a time right now where things are changing rapidly. Uh, I had an interesting discussion with a world-class economist, uh, Robert McGarvey, the other day, and he talked a lot about this third wave that we're in right now and, and how it's very much like the Industrial Revolution and things are changing rapidly. So what kind of things should the I.O. be asking themselves as they look forward into the next few years. Uh, Trip, I think you would be great to go to to start this off. Well, it's a great question, and thanks, Tom. Uh, I'm not a world-class economist, but I'm a world-class future of work person, so I'll talk about it from that perspective. I I think one of the fascinating things we have now, and I've heard this from a lot of other futurists I've talked to over the last several years, is we're finally at a point where if we can conceive an, an idea, if we know what we want to do, there's nothing that really can slow you down. Everything is in place right now to achieve your lifetime goals and dreams because there's so much available to you. So the question has to be is, what does that mean to you? And when you think to yourself as an I.O., I think a lot of I.O.s make a mistake. They try to be a lot of things to a lot of people. And, and, and 30 years later, having been in organizational development now for 40-some years, almost 40 years now, I, I think the question has got to be, what do you do that it so excites you, you'll do it for free. Now, I won't make you ask you to do it for free, but I do think it's there's no reason you can't do anything. I live in Amish country, <laughs> right? And I'm, I speak all, I was in Korea last night. I was in London in the morning. I'm on my way to Taiwan. Tell me how that all works. This is all possible simply because the infrastructure is now available to us. So everyone in this room has an opportunity to choose what they want to do. And I think the other part of this, and this is part of my, the bigger thesis called the ensemble economy, we really get the choice of what we do and how we align ourselves with other people. So not only think about what you love to do, but my secret weapon is, and it's been for 30, now 32 years, is find people you like to work with and figure out what those people have going for them. And then when you know what that is, just find those kind of people. So that would be my, my, the kickoff is don't think things are impossible. Look, I grew up in a small farming village, literally, when I was living there. And I've achieved almost everything I've wanted in my life. Uh, And it's because I have a a high level of imagination. And secondarily, even today at 60, I'm still driven to learn. I'm still learning new things. I spent yesterday with an oncologist, cancer oncologist from Harvard, talking about the future of uh, medical uh, science in the area of cancer oncology. So ask yourself... Everybody in this room has that one thing that you love to do. And it's really easy today to find people with similar interests. If you have an interest, it may be very small, but with the worldwide audience you can reach now, think about it. What do you want to be known for? What's the one thing you want to do? Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Trip. And and really sort of, you know, finding those people that, you that share that passion with you 
and then being able to take that message out. Uh, Jeremy, what are your thoughts on this? I first want to, um, I, I spent, I spent this past week in compiling a lot of, a lot of notes and I want to encourage everyone, uh, honestly, when, when you hear something that that's important and that is something that you feel like you should hang on, make sure to write it down. And especially if that comes from trip and I'll tell you why I, I spent this weekend, um, and I was telling Tom earlier, compiling a lot of notes and I compiled my trip notes and I realized it spans pages and pages and pages long of my trip notes and trip. I know you have no idea that I've been compiling notes about what you've been saying in our conversations. I'll send it to you um, because you'll see the, the points, the phrases, uh, the insights that stick out most to me, but these are very, very important. And I'm going to, I'm making it a point um, with my compiled notes to take a look at those every morning so that I can keep these these top of mind and continue with what's important. So if anything strikes you, be sure to write them, uh, you know, write, write things down, even if you have a good memory. I'm not a write down things kind of person, but when I hear something that can be life-changing, help me along the way, I, I do write down. And I, and I realize that I've got more notes than, uh, than I ever thought. Um, what, what Tripp was saying about find people who you, who you like to work with, and find what you love to do and find what your commonalities are. That is, and you mentioned Trip talks a lot about the ensemble economy. And I think with, with IOs, we've got this, we've got this, you know, it's kind of like a fraternal organization. If you meet another IO, it's like, oh, you're an IO. And automatically it's arms open. Uh, hey, let's do lunch kind of a thing. Because we feel, even though the field is growing so quickly, a lot of us still knows, still know what it feels like for the field to be small and no matter how big the field gets, I think with at least within the next 10 years, uh, I think that um, everyone is that, that most IOs are still going to feel a, a little bit of a loan because of the nature of the field, as we all know it with goes, which goes without explanation. So that my, my first question was going to be the more standard one, which was, you know, what is your, what is your niche? What is your area? What's your target area? And that falls right into what Tripp was saying. Find something, but, but, but make sure that when you do that, you're not just choosing it because, Hey, this is a particular area that's going to make me money. You know, there's, there's no one in this particular area of IO make sure you like to do it, but also find other, other people. So going along with that question, I think, and I want to come, I want to start to compile a list of, of questions that we have today. And, um, I'm, I'm looking over at my notes here. So we basically have two from trip. What do you, what, what, what's something that you would love to do that you would do for life for free and who are the people with similar interests? And then the next question would be, how can we, I'm trying, I have these written as statements, so I'm turning them. How can we find people that we like to work with? So I'll add to that. Um, you know, just another question, what's your niche area and an area that you love to work with? And then my next question is going to be now that we're IOs and we're this, we're, we're in our own, uh, nice close knit community. The question is really what happens next. And I've got an idea and Tripp has talked a lot about the ensemble economy and I, I'm starting to understand it more and more, the more I learn about it. What can we do as IOs? that are interested we're already here we're on this format and we obviously like to talk to each other listen to each other and we share similar interests so what ideas what are those creative juices how can we pull our, our strengths together to get to where we want to be individually and also to help each other to be successful while helping those that come after us in io be successful as well as we continue to work on uh, IO's brand and the brand as a whole. And then also going back and I'm thinking back what Tripp's saying, sometimes we do have to stop thinking of ourselves as, you know, if we're talking to each other, sure, we, we can geek out as IO's, but sometimes our message, and I'm, I'm going off of what, what Tripp makes me think of to the world needs to be, we're not just IO's, we're world-class consultants, we're world-class workplace consultants. And I think that's a message that, that, that really needs to 
that we need to think about on a, on a daily basis. I'm going to leave it at that and turn it over to you, Tom. Thanks, Jeremy. And a quick reminder that if you'd like to join the conversation, uh, please raise your hand and come up on stage. Uh, Jeremy, with that in mind, uh, it's, you know, I think it's great to put together a network of IOs uh, just to share information, possibilities, opportunities. But you've actually reached outside the IO community as well. Uh, you're working with Sharon and myself. Uh, you're working with Trip as well. And do you want to talk a little bit about your journey in the ensemble economy, teaming up with us and the work that's happening at Virtual Communication Mastery? Hit the wrong button. There we go. Yeah. So I found myself at, as an IO, the, the majority, the, the people that I work with the most are not necessarily IOs or could be the farthest thing away from IOs. Uh, and the collaboration and the ability to, there's a startup I'm working with, um, really interesting things coming with, uh, I'll, I'll just leave it at that for now. But the people, we, we did this thing where we each put a one-liner and we have 15 different people and I will find that list and I'll, I'll read a little bit of that, that list in terms of um, it's really like, this is what I do. This is what I'm, what I'm focused on. This is what I'm passionate about. And that's it. It's a one-liner, but I think that helps. And, and maybe we should all be doing that in our workplaces and doing that with the partnerships that we have with the people that we're, that we're working with and uh, for virtual communication mastery, that's something I, I'm always able to, I find that I'm always able to find where I can take my passion, which my passion is IO and, and communication negotiation and, and find people who have a need and enjoy and are sometimes amazed by those particular concepts. And with the VCM, that's where we're working on. It's very IO related, the remote workforce. And how do you take what we know already through the studies about remote work and then we tie in the social aspect of okay well, we've known this for and people have been doing remote work for you know two decades plus but now it's a thing so now what do we do with it and what's all the communication involved what's all the science involved and that's really really interesting i always find myself on the ground floor of exciting things and it's weird that we're talking about the remote workforces, you know, the ground floor of the remote workforce, but it's really now that it's caught on. And now the companies are saying, I guess it's not a bad idea. I guess I do need to trust my employees. So it's, it's important work that we're doing at, v, at, at Virtual Communication Mastery. And it's important work um, for, uh, for the IO community as well, Tom. Yeah, I think it's going to be revolutionary, and I think the IOs are going to play a large role in that. Uh, hello, Heather. Welcome to the stage. You want to unmute your mic and join us? Hi, thank you. <laughs> uh, You're very I'm welcome. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. That's right. Do you, uh, do you have a question or uh, something to add to the conversation? Um, I thoroughly enjoyed listening to honing in on what you would want to do for free. And like finding that niche. I personally, before I be went to IO, I was in applied behavior analysis and learned about OBM or organizational behavior management. And I am super passionate about that. And so I found books and research just to try and learn more. And that's what got me into IO. And yes, I'm just soaking up all of your info. Well, let me ask you, uh, where has that journey taken you to this point? And where would you like to be, you know, in the next couple of years? Oh, of course. I initially was working for an ABA clinic and then went to school. I ended up with COVID and went and stayed at home and did school full time. And so I took extra classes. I took some certifications in OBM. And now I'm able to help apply it to some of my friends jobs I come in I'm not like an official I guess consultant but I'm able to help them create meaningful change and observe employee behavior to help everyone be more productive and safer and just get all of their goals in order with that in mind as as sort of your passion where do you see IO going um, in the direction that you're heading where is the change going to come or what kind of change would you like to uh, implement. 
I would love to see. So I was super passionate about ABA. However, I was kind of stuck only working with special needs children, which don't get me wrong. I did not mind that. However, I thoroughly enjoyed seeing why employees behaved the way that they did, how I could help manipulate the environment and consequences to change certain behaviors. And so I guess OBM kind of focuses on the organizational side of IO psychology. Now the industrial side, you know, we can do the research and all that stuff. However, I would love to see more focus on employee behavior, manipulating the environment. And then as you guys were talking about, we are moving to a remote workforce. And so how to motivate people who are working from home to be more productive, get their stuff done and just stay motivated. Great insight. And, and all the best of you in that future, because I think it is going to be uh, dynamic. Colin, welcome to the stage. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Colin, welcome to the stage as well. Uh, it's good to see you back. Do you want to unmute your mic and share your thoughts here? Hello, Colin. Are you with us? Yes. Hello there. How are you? Not bad yourself. Great. All right. Um, let's see. You should be asking yourself. I believe that as organizational psychologists, uh, they should be asking themselves about, you know, mental health. I believe mental health in the field um, is important as well. Um, I think that's what Heather was saying, you know, about like the structure and about how, you know, this focus on just employees and, you know, themselves, it, it, it's very important, ah, sorry, important. Um, I, I just wrote down a few things, like, for example, I wrote down, like, increased awareness of mental health on the employee. Um, like, for example, I see myself working with, I, I guess, like, the European environment, like, in Great Britain, for example. Um, in a few years, I see myself working in Great Britain with the mental health experts there and trying to understand you know, hey, well, everyone has a problem. I'm here to solve it. You know, what are the problems in the workplace? How, how, how crucial, you know, in this, in this day and age with technology that we have this power to basically explain more, you know, because each employee, I think, has um, their days where they're just not as productive as they should be. And I think as organizational psychologists, it's our job to kind of help them out of that loophole that they may be having. Um, for example, what I think, or what I'm thinking in my head as a student is like, you know, whether you have like a job shadowing model, a model where you actually shadow an organizational practitioner and you go in and you basically work and engage in like skills and you get to see or behavioral consultants basically and i feel like behavioral consultants could be a very vital piece to organizational psychology as a whole um like for example i work with consumers with idd so it's very interesting and you know you can be in a clinic setting you can be in a, a hospital environment and you just see all these things that need to be fixed. Now, I'm trying to think here. And I also think that we should be not really focused on, um, we should all, we should be explaining all of our ideas to people that, or like money people that can help us, like behavioral um, consultants. Um, I have a very, I have a very good friend of mine She's a behavioral consultant, and she's given me a lot of great ideas that organizational psychologists could implement, whether it's in their own practice, whether it's working with a team of people at, uh, at a hospital or uh, different things like that. Um, I apologize if I'm a little scatterbrained. I'm just trying to see what my notes were. Um, and I also said something about like workplace management, um, like structure for like educational professors professors um, because currently as a student there are issues like it's it's like almost like you're in a laboratory experiment when you're learning about um, 
organizations or, or organizational practitioners. And you don't really get that hands-on feel until somebody comes in as a guest speaker. And you don't get, and you get to really, inter- you don't get to interact with them until then. And so it's like, you know, as a student, you can't be with that guest speaker 24-7 after they're gone, you know, after they speak at your school. And that to me is a little frustrating and I figure, and I feel like that could be changed in a more positive direction, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally does. Uh, Tripp, you had your hand up. Yeah, you know, I, I want to suggest that something kind of radical in the room. And just uh, to think about it, uh, part of what I'm hearing, and I, I hear it a lot from organizational psychologists, and I've heard it for many years. The other approach, you know, we look and say, this is a problem we have to solve. Uh, I'm one of these guys who believe in appreciative inquiry. I got to work with David Cooper, writer. I work with Martin Seligman, who I'm, uh, is on early strength training uh, strength and Gallup. One of my suggestions might be consider, and I'm not saying this up to Colin, but I'm saying to all of us, is how we see our, our, our clients tells us a lot about how we see our, our world. And one of the reasons I chose strength-based psychology versus going the traditional route, and I have a number of friends who went the traditional routes who all left the field over, over the last 20 years, and I'm still here hanging out. Um, part of it's because I have a different way of looking at my clients, and my clients get that from me. And, and, and it's, what's nice about it, it's not something that has to happen in an instant. But it is something you should be exploring, uh, Colin, especially being that you're younger. And a lot of what you talked about, I think there's two ways to solve the problem. One is to call it a problem. And one of them is to really understand the underlying root cause of some of those things. But also understanding how you present your ideas for adoption, especially in a stress-filled world, having a positive way of looking at it by asking positive questions will get you some of the similar answers you're looking for, but you'll become the person they come to almost on any challenge that they come into because they know you're going to look at it and help them shape it and frame it. Because I think that's one of the questions I'd be asking is what kind of psych- what kind of organizational psychology do I want to get involved in? And what's my personal philosophy on that? I'm a strength-based person. One of my business partners is an extreme opposite of that. Uh, and, and I, I always get the call from the <laughs> better or worse. I get the call first from my, her and my clients. I just would suggest to you the other part of this is there's so many new things having emerged in the last 20 years on a positive psychology uh, from Martin Seligman to uh, David Cooper Ryder to Gallup and Don Clifton. There's a tremendous body of work that I'd love to have everybody in this room at least explore it to see because what I find is it, it empowers me to be me more than traditional psychology does. And that's ultimately what I want to get to is ultimately I don't want them to see them and have them see me as their psychologist or organizational psychologist, but I want them to see me as being a resource available. And uh, like I said, this is not so much about Colin, but I do think the other part of this is, is how we frame the world. You know, the question I'd ask you is, how do you frame the world? How do you see what you do? And how do you present yourself in that way? Because once people start to take a picture of you, and, and especially as you move up the corporate ladder, people start to know what kind of person you are in these meetings. They know what they get, what kind of energy you bring. So I would, I would, I'd ask everyone in this room who may not be familiar with appreciative inquiry or strength-based psychology to look into it. I think it's probably the next big wave from the point of view of team building. And, and, and I've talked to a lot of people about this. The other thing I'd say is, remember the other part of this, and I say this because I've got 40 years in my career at this point, not to brag, but the whole idea is I still like my job. I Hopefully it comes across in the energy I bring to the room. I always like my job. And that was because I made a conscious decision uh, at the same time when I was back in school. Now that's almost 40 years ago. Uh, and my friends and all had choices of what we decided to do. Uh, I'm one of the few people who took this route of positive psychology. I'm also the un- one of the few people who stayed in the field for 40 years. So I think there's a correlation. And I think it's just you guys, as you think about what you should ask yourself is, who do I want to be seen as? Because it really is critical because it doesn't just exist in work. I wish I could say to you when I come home, I'm, yeah, I can be negative. I just not, I don't have that personality. Um, but I'm telling you, the other part is this, this kinds of job, and I, I'd love to hear Jeremy's thoughts on this, will burn you out if you don't find a way of maximizing your energy 
and also maximizing your upside because there's so much uh, we're going to deal with in the next 20 years. So that, that's what I had to say because I, I just think we're missing that positive side. And, and professors are terrible at saying, oh, that's not very validated. Two and a half million people at StrengthFinder <laughs> probably validates a little bit of the conclusion. Uh, same thing with Martin Seligman with uh, Positive Psychology, David Cooper, writer. These are all validated organizational psychologies. So explore them. That's what time, if you're still in school, get a chance, experiment with them. See who you want to be when you show up in your, 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 your work because you've got a long time. You'll be working till you're 100, and all of you in this room, almost all of you, will statistically make it to 100. So think about it. Thank you. Uh, you're very welcome, Tripp. Uh, Jeremy, uh, let's go to you to take a look at that question about, you know, even if it's a passion for you, how do you avoid burnout in this industry? Thanks. And yeah, um, finishing taking some notes here on, on what Tripp said. And after this, I want to throw it to Danielle for her thoughts. So Tripp, you said, uh, you know, how, and how do we prevent burnout and maximize energy? And, and then I lost it. So I just wrote the upside. <laughs> so how do we maximize energy and the upside? Um, um, Kim Musselman, a friend of mine in South Africa who works uh, a lot with neuroscience, she posted on LinkedIn the other day. And I appreciated what she posted, something about people who get burnout often will work and work and work until they're tired and then they take a break, right? Basically, they work until they're, they're burnt out and then they decide to take a vacation. But the more effective people are the ones who will take breaks in, incrementally in between, you know, and I'm talking about months spans here and who and that will take will do things for their mental health. Um, they'll do you know, the exercising thing, they might take a camping trip, they're going to take time off, they're going to spend time with family and friends, but they don't just drive themselves and drive themselves into the ground. And I know part of that is cultural too, because here in the West, we we tend to do that. And I think we've done, we've done that for uh, a number of decades. So I, I really think that it is about, I think, I think it all comes down to time management. And I think it all comes down to looking at to a couple of other questions that IO should be asking themselves. If you're doing something, stop it and say, if I wasn't doing what I'm doing right now, would I be doing it at all? And is it more important than what I could be doing? Does this have anything to do with the, with my goals for today? There are three questions that Warren Buffett used to ask himself. The only problem is I can't find where I wrote them down, but this it's, it's it's the same trip you might i mean you 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 might even know uh it's the same kind of thing it's it's these questions it's like it's like with minimalism if i if before you buy something will this add great function to my life or will this add great beauty to my life and the last question is how hard will it be to get rid of it so there's different questions and these are great self-check questions that we can ask ourselves in almost any situation to maximize our, our potential. And then is this worth my while? When you think about it, I think when you do the math, 15 minutes a day comes out to two hours, or, I'm sorry, two weeks per year of time. Think about that. So if you do something for 15 minutes a day, whether it's social media, whether it's check the news, whether it's whatever it may be, just 15 minutes. And we all know, I mean, look at the data with the hours a day that people are wasting. Just 15 minutes, you get back two weeks of productivity in your life or two weeks of vacation or two weeks of spending time with the kids or reading or whatever it is that you just love to do on the side. There's so many things that we don't stop to think, think about. And I think a big part of that is just stopping. And it's all about the habit. It's all about the habit. Use headspace, get into some habit of even if it's a small meditation. I think the two main uh, meditation apps out there are calm and headspace, but do those kinds of things. Also, be sure to what's what's the saying? If you do something you love, you never work a day in your life. Going back to what Tripp was saying about finding people that share your same interests. If you're working on the projects and you're working with the people that you like and enjoy working with, it's going to feel less like work and maybe just a little bit more like a vacation. The last thing I'll mention before I'll throw it over to, I want to throw it over to Danielle for any questions or comments. Anyone, if you remember back in you know college, high school, whatever it may be, 
once you, if you're, or even work, right? How many, how many people work? Like if you work a nine to five on Monday through Friday and you're working on a Saturday, does it not, don't, don't those Saturdays kind of feel like they're not really working days, even though you're doing the work, it just feels a little different because it's Saturday. You don't really have to be there. It's just Saturday. If you choose to go in, let's say to work a little more. That's what when, that that's the kind of feeling I think you can get where it's less stressful if you're working on something that you love and that you're working with people who share the same passions and interests to you. Uh, Danielle, let's go over to you for some thoughts and then Tom, I'll let you take it over, please. Uh, good morning or afternoon, depending on where you are. <laughs> uh, I want to piggyback on what Tripp was saying. I 100% agree and practice the things that he talked about with appreciative inquiry and strengths-based and whatnot. I recently attended the 2021 ISCP, if you're not familiar with them, that's the International Society for Coaching Psychologists, uh, their 2021 Congress. And what was interesting that I found was there was a study that was shared that showed that most of coaching is headed toward being all about wellness. Sure, they take performance and other things into account, but they really focus on wellness. Uh, and then on the on the other side of that, there was a business coach who said, if you're doing business coaching, you shouldn't be doing wellness. You should just be doing whatever the organization is asking you to do um, to help with progress and production and, and whatnot. And so with that in the back of my head and then listening to what Tripp was talking about, um, I kind of struggled with this a little bit for myself, asking myself, how much wellness do I allow into sessions with my clients? And wellness is important, but as an IO, we have to think about the system. We have to think about the organization and, and where it's going and um, I really like to get involved with the leadership teams and find out what is their plan? Where are they going? How do they plan to get there? What's their mission and vision? And who who are the individuals that I'm working with and, and what's their role in helping that to move forward? And yes, we got to make sure we're preventing burnout. We've got to make sure that we're keeping people well, but we're also having to focus on, are they doing the, what they need to be doing to help them to push the company forward? Are they doing what they need to be doing to help them with their position in the company or their career? I can't tell you how many times I've coached people out of the jobs that they were in because they weren't in the right job. And the company doesn't want them there if they don't want to be there. Um, but so I just wanted to piggyback on what we're talking about here with just saying, yes, you have to know what kind of IO you are. What are the sort of areas that you want to specialize in? Does it have to do more with the wellness side, which, you know, then we all walk that line of, yes, we are psychologists, but we're not clinicians. We're not licensed counselors. And so knowing what your resources are is really important, especially with different organizations. They may have some resources available to their employees um, but then also going in with clear expectations. I'm an external IO, so I don't work with just one firm. So I have a um, slightly different perspective on it. Uh, but going in with clear expectations and letting the company know and, and every individual you work with know what they can expect from you and what they're not going to get from you as a psychologist. Um, and then also taking the systems thinking approach to it and knowing what's going on with this company, where are they wanting to go, how do the different departments work together, and um, helping the teams to communicate the way that they need to. Um, I, so that's my, my comment on the current topic of discussion. But I also wanted to add, and going back to the main question of what should we be thinking about as world-class IOs, um, something that I think about is when I'm working with different clients, am I doing a pretty good job of, of sort of upselling, if you will, for lack of a better word? Am I doing a good job of letting my clients know what all I'm there to help them with? Because if they're used to me coaching individuals or they're used to me um, doing skill assessments with individuals or training folks on things. Tom, your uh, mic. Sorry, Daniel. Tom, your your mic is hot. Just there you go. <laughs> Thanks, Jerry. I don't know if he heard you. 
Um, Tom, there you go. <laughs> it keeps going Tom, on and off. And cold with you. It's going wild. Sorry about that, guys. <laughs> um, so if they're used to seeing me do one or two things, they may not know all the other things that I can do for them. And so I have to make sure that I'm letting leadership know, hey, you can use me for this and that as well and include me on certain conversations. And like Tripp was saying, we may do a better job of framing things better for folks. I just did that in a meeting I had a couple of days ago because someone was getting very passionate about uh, the topic of discussion. And so um, as the IO in the room, even though that's not what I was there to do in this particular meeting, um, I, I helped them to reframe the conversation and ask a question so that everyone in the room felt like they were heard and, um, and we could approach the subject with a calmer tone. And um, so letting, letting the organization know what are some of the other things that you're also there to do with them. Thank you very much, Danielle. Tripp, let's go to you. I, I wanted to build on what Daniel said and, and maybe answer from some experience, what I've, at least what I've had on this. I, I think two things. One is, I, I think things are changing, no question about it. But the other question is, I can tell you, you mentioned Warren Buffett earlier as a client. Um, so I can tell you the other part of that is most of my clients, um, I only work with Charlie, but part of the whole idea is understanding that the holistic person will get better as you work with them on all these things. I think you have to think of the human being as a system in itself. I mean, and I would also encumber you by saying it's the power of the both and. We can do both. And we sometimes can do both in the same conversation with somebody where I can't imagine any of my high-performing executives or my high-performing special operations teams I've worked with not having that inclusiveness of understanding themselves. So part of it is we have to become more agile and flexible in what we do. Because I think, uh, you know, you make a perfect point. They only know what you do because of what you do. But it's kind of like what I always tell Jeremy. It's like consulting. There are no tadas in consulting. You don't get to, at the end of the performance, at the end of the consulting engagement, take your bows. So I think one of the skills you can work on to, to help improve your skills is how do we develop that capability of moving in and out and be flexible enough to work with the people where they're at, knowing that by working with them in some problem areas or potentially opportunity areas, we change the dynamic in the room like you did with the question. So I think as we move forward, we're going to find more and more people. And this is very Buddhist, so I'll always give credit to where it belongs. I heard this from the Dalai Lama. But it's the holistic idea that every individual is an ecosystem in themselves. And if we think about it that way as an I.O., thinking there's a lot of different kinds of things because organizations only perform as well as individual components. You can tell I'm a technology guy, right? But think about it from the point of view of not being limited by the conventional wisdom that's out there today. But consider your, this as your own discipline and how do you want to do it? Because you will find throughout your career, I can promise you, you will find people in very bad situations. Yet they have everything in the world they want. And you don't have to too look too far in the news to see some of these people take their lives. So you have a choice. You have to decide. You also have to have partners. You know, when I get people that are really on that edge, I call my friends a psychologist or psychiatrist to get involved. But that's part of my own boundary system. And you need to think to yourself, what's the question is, what are my boundaries today? And how might I expand them going forward? but not being encumbered by a model that's ineffective in today's world. Thanks very much for that trip. It kind of leads me to a question that sort of popped into my head when Danielle was talking, and it's about the work-life balance. You know, with, with the work I'm doing, I, I keep hearing about this, this trend, which has already started, where people are leaving their jobs. Sometimes it's because they've been working hybrid or remotely and now they're being told they have to come back to the office so what's the role of an io in helping individuals establish that work-life balance and i'll just throw that to anybody who wants to unmute their mic and, and take a try at that tom i'm going to take it a stab at a, a previous question then I'll, I'll give you back get you back to that one or not a previous question but a couple of things that have been thrown around in terms of the boundaries and the competencies with IOs, and I, one thing as an IO, as you know, any as any consultant in the workplace, we don't 
we've got to be careful. And this is, you know, these, these are in the, um, you know, APA guidelines. Everything is very important. We've got to be very careful with throwing around the word mental health. We have, when you, when you look at mental health on a clinical basis, we have zero to do with mental health. And that is a boundary that we cannot cross. So anything that ever starts to signal uh, mental health, we've got to say, basically, I've got to recognize my competency and it's unethical and it's against very uh, specific APA codes that we've got to refer out Im immediately. So I love what Tripp said about understanding those competencies and those who have had the, the formal IO um, through the APA, the formal education and the formal code of ethics run through and so forth. We've got to immediately make sure. So how do we get past that in the, in the, in the workplace? How do we get our message across without saying the words mental health? Because let's face it, five years ago, 10 years ago, saying the word mental health in the workplace before the big trend of, of mental health and wellness, that's where that would really knock IO out of the branding. Because we've always had this problem as IO psychologists, just because of the word psychology, people think, oh, you're an industrial organizational psychologist, so you do therapy with people and organizations. I guarantee every single IO in this room has heard that. I guarantee it. And you've all, <laughs> we've all heard it. No, we don't throw people on a couch and we don't do Rorschach ink block. block it's the scientific study of the workplace and it has nothing to do with mental, with what is called in the clinical world, abnormal behavior, which is when you're looking at mental illness, illness, which can be categorized clinically. We deal with the opposite of that, which is categorized as when you talk in clinical terms, normal behavior. As soon as you, we get to anything that could be clinical, we have to refer out. So on that, on that note, um, what can we do? Well, we can talk about it. instead of saying mental health, we can say um, preventing burnout with, with uh, mental well, with health and wellness uh, and Doing, su doing such in a way that we create an emotional, uh, a strong emotional attachment to the organization and a strong commitment to the organization because of what the organization is providing for its for employees in regards to their own health and wellness and go that route rather than throwing out the word, the word mental health. Um, I wanted to add in uh, two questions. So we're, we're focusing on the questions. So one thing I turned that, that trip set into a question is, so I'm switching gears here. Am I flexible enough to meet people where they're at? So that's another question that we need to be asking ourselves. Am I flexible enough to meet people where, where they're at? The other question is, am I champ? And this is from what trip said earlier. Am I championing what people are good at and tying that into the particular challenge at hand? And what Tripp said that got me thinking about that was he said, ask questions and have a positive way of looking at your clients in the world. I'll repeat that because it's very important. Ask questions and have a positive way of looking at your clients in the world. And it made me think of a relationship between maybe um, a, a middle school coach uh, of uh, a soccer team. And there's a soccer player. Is it, here's what you do. Here's what you do. I'm the coach. I can really teach you. Here's what you do. Or is it really being that particular kid's you know, a champion? You're really fast. You're really good at um, uh, seeing the bigger picture, but being able to champion. So I'm thinking about this in terms of, of clients. Um, you know, let's take a client who owns uh, several retail shops and they're dealing with an issue with some of their managers wanting pay, pay, pay increases, for example. Well, what is that person already good at? So being their champion, looking at them in a positive light. Yes, they have a problem. You're already looking at yourself in a positive light because you're the consultant. And of course, they're coming to you. So your chest, chest is all big. And you're like, I know everything. But how can you be their champion? How can you ask questions to them in a positive way and look at them and the world around them in, in a positive light? So um, that question was, am I a champion to what people are good at, to what my clients are good at? and tying it in what they're good at into the challenge that they are facing. Tom, I'm going to turn it over to you. I am going to um, bring up Angelo because I see the hand is up, but Tom, over to you. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Um, this is all really interesting. And 
you know, I want to sort of bring us back to the question we started with, where, you know, what are the questions that IO should be asking themselves today? Um, but let me hold that thought. Angelo, welcome to the stage. Do you want to share your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. Um, to, sorry for hopping on late, so I missed a little bit earlier, but that that point about, you know, the clinical psychologist versus the IO psychologist, I happen to work in community mental health as well, and I've been there for almost a decade now. And I kind of took that into some of my studies with IO psychology, and there's obviously some of the stigma related to mental health, and we're not we're operating from the same clinical perspective. But I found that when we talk about things like what you just mentioned there, Jeremy, right, with having a positive way to look at the world or asking questions of your of your clients, and that's really you know a strength based approach to working with anybody. So those individual um, perspectives can be applied to to customers. But um, when I first hopped on, I think we were talking about that work life balance and boundaries. And that really brought me back to some of those, you know, I know I don't want to go down the clinical route too much, but the same way that we work with an organization or a customer to help them identify what area of scope that they're working within, right? Understanding where those boundaries lie, what their strengths are within that area. And that also includes where you're not going to place your energy, right? And as an IO psychologist, we should somewhat be doing this with ourselves, right? What are our own strengths? And what are the areas that we're trying to focus on and make a difference in? And also using that to somewhat exclude things that you're necessarily not comfortable with because some of that burnout and some of that burnout just comes from overextending ourselves and losing a sense of control. And that happens when we take on too much or take on areas that we're not necessarily prepared to move into, right? So for an individual IO psychologist, it's, I think it's good to have an understanding of you know, yeah, what's your strengths? What's your scope? What areas can you control? And in the areas that you feel like you're lacking, you know, bringing awareness to those as well and not trying to, you know, always, we should always be pushing further and pushing forward, but also we should do it a little bit strategically so that we're not burning ourselves out on both ends. Thank you very much for that, Angelo. Uh, let me ask you, if you don't mind, uh, we're, I've been talking with a world-class economist, uh, Robert McGarvey, and he's talking about this transition uh, that organizations are going through, where they're going to start to more and more realize that business is not about the factory or the machine, that business is really about the individuals, about the employees. So if we see that transition happening, What's the future of IO look at or look like? And are there some perhaps niches that are going to become uh, necessary to fill in the future? Oh, man, I love this question. <laughs> I think, you know, as we look at like industrial revolutions throughout history and we've seen how they shaped and um, push the industries or specific industries forward. And we see a lot of AI coming in and automation coming in and removing some of those um, people tasks that we were doing. It really does bring us back around to the humanistic aspect of how do we operate a business? How do we attract um, customers? How do we retain them? And I think that's one thing that we're seeing right now in the, in the working world, as far as, you know, the, the great, resignation or the great realization for some people is that, hey, as an employee, I'm also somewhat of a customer. And as a customer, I want to be valued and I want to be, and I want to know that my contributions or whatever I'm doing has meaning and purpose behind it. And I feel like that's what we're seeing in a lot of these um, push away from the traditional nine to five where emphasis is put on productivity and quantities. And now we're looking at how do we actually measure value added services, um, qualitative aspects of a person's job and really understanding how that actually impacts some of those previous quantitative measures that were previously taking place. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Trip. let me go to you for your expertise here because uh, is this a bubble? Is this an illusion? Or do you think that business is really changing and the focus is really going to be placed not just on profit, but on people as well? I think it's both. 
I think it's a bubble as well. I, that's my biggest concern is that you, you spend and invest a lot of capital in these areas. And I mean, capital being our time, our energy, our, our passion around some of these areas to discover that they're not really serious about it. What I think will change, however, is because I think for the foreseeable future, there'll be a shortage of great people. And I think that's where that may be the counterbalance to what you're talking about. The whole idea that people who are successful, uh, you used to be able to run a company with a thousand people. Today, you run it with 250 good people, great people, and 750 people probably don't work for you anymore. So I, I think part of that is understanding that I think they are, organizations truly are getting more and more like this because the people leading these organizations are like this. I think that's the thing that we need to incorporate into the conversation is this generational change. Everyone in this room who is 20 years or younger than me will probably tell you and have a different set of priorities than I do in my career at this point. And I think those people are going to be moving into leadership roles in organizations and will not ask people to do things that they won't do themselves because that's the word integrity. You know, people, that's one of the things I find with younger people in particular, and I mean younger being between 20 and 45 or 50, is they have integrity with the system of saying, I would never ask a person to do something like this. I can tell you personally, many of the people I, I grew up with uh, had none of those qualms because it was a very much a dog-eat-dog -dog world. So I think that the, the other change that we're going to see in the workforce is the leadership of the workforce being more balanced as well. And if you can provide them that balance and space, they will provide it to their teams because they, out of sense of fairness, will want to do that. And they will also know that fairness will keep bringing people back and keeping people engaged in their organizations. Thank you very much for that, trip. Uh, just a little reminder to everybody that we've got about seven minutes left in this room, uh, but Jeremy will be starting another room at the top of the hour. Uh, Colin, you had your hand up. Do you want to uh, jump in here? Yes, sir. Um, I was getting ready to say that my current workplace balance is four days a week. And it's four days a week because of school. And I felt, I think there was a study done by a psychologist, and they were saying that, I think it was Microsoft, and they were saying that their employees are allotted only that they can work. They don't have to work five days a week, they can work four days a week. And I've noticed that as I worked four days a week, my stress level has gone down. My, productiv my productivity, you know, my production level has increased. And my, you know, my mental state is actually better than it was working five days a week because you're essentially five to six days is overwork. And, and, and I feel that. And it's pretty interesting that a lot of companies now are realizing that and that are hopefully implementing, you know, four days a week into their schedule because I feel like it's important and that it will stop the employee, you know, burnout. Because uh, currently where I work, there are burnouts happening and I do observe them. I don't tell anybody about them. I just observe, observe, you know, what's going on and I see it and it pains me because I'm like, we have really good employees yet they're burning out so easily because of, you know, the overworked, whether it's they need certain hours met or, you know, like family, you know, just struggles that everyone has personally can be really affected. And this is such a great topic that we're actually talking about. And I'm just, I, I appreciate um, the conversation right now because it's really, really unique. Um, thank you. Thanks, Colin. Uh, Danielle, you're on the front line here. Uh, what are you seeing as sort of things are evolving into the future? Uh, sorry, I was brushing my teeth. <laughs> That's the, the beauty of these kinds of meetings, right? <laughs> um, Frontline, what I'm seeing is organizations dealing with the change that, you know, yes, I agree, Trip. it is generational, but every one of the older generations are also saying, well, what about me? I can do that too. I want that too. And so um, I've got business owners who are dealing with employees who are moving out of state, uh, but wanting to keep their job. And so talking about what should policy, policy look like for when we want to have in-person events, do we pay to bring that person in or do we make them pay for it because they're the ones that chose to move? Um, 
we are also Colin talking about um, people are working from home and uh, so maybe and taking Mondays or Fridays off or Wednesdays and we are seeing an increase in productivity that way but we're also hearing from people who are saying that working from home um, is it's in a way harder because they feel like they're always on and they're never off of work and so we're having those conversations and um, and then another thing that I'm talking about with with clients is how do you include everyone who is working from home or working remotely and so that if they're not in person that you're not lessening their value or thinking about them for promotion because they're not always in the room they should still have a voice so how do they go about ensuring that so those are some of the issues that we've been dealing with and i think those are issues that you know everyone's going to be facing and uh, jeremy is leading us in some uh, research and discussions on many of those topics uh, linda ann nice to see you on stage uh, unmute your mic and share your thoughts well, thank you for having me. Um, just in listening to the whole conversation, um, again, I have a little different perspective, but what I'm, what I'm feeling like is, is missing in the conversation is how are we training people? How are we training the managers to recognize what Danielle was talking about, whether it's the, the wellness that needs to be um, recognized and, and is showing up as performance issues? Um, how is, uh, you know, the, um, for example, if you have someone going through a divorce, right, they might even be a manager. So the, the next level manager is going to have to pick up on it. You know, is that manager recognizing where there's a gap in that current employee's um, performance? Because, you know, when they're going through a divorce, it's going to happen. So are you working and seeing it as an opportunity for that number two to pick up some slack to get that manager, you know, um, through the, this short term period, but using it as an opportunity for developing skills, you know, in the, um, the rest of the staff, but also really how are we, and then how difficult is that to even recognize those signals over virtual, you know, or people being trained to see what the signs look like over a virtual, um, situation. So I really think that I agree with Trip completely as far as the difference in management as younger people come through the, the pipeline. I've always said I wouldn't ever ask anybody to do anything that I um, that I wouldn't do or I haven't done. And, uh, and I think that's a really good um, standard. But we really need to look at not just the employee and what they need and what the company needs. Who's facilitating that process? Thanks. Very well said, Linda. And, and um, once again, we've reached a point where I would love to continue this conversation, but we're running out of time. Uh, so Jeremy, let me throw it back to you to wrap this up and uh, let us know about the next room. Yeah, I want to throw in a contrarian to the, I would never ask anyone to do what I wouldn't do or haven't done. And I, I get the sentiment behind this. I'm not speaking of the sentiment behind it. But I think just in terms of broadening speaking, I absolutely would because there's some things that um, so I would never do because I have no I would not be good at that or I wouldn't begin to have the competence in that area. And if I know my team well enough, I may I may know someone who loves the the the, the really tough challenges, the dirty work the scary work, the frightening work, whatever it may be. So I think the thinking, the lines of thinking, and, and Linda Ann, I completely get where you're coming from. So I'm definitely not arguing your point there. But I guess what I'm saying is for managers, if you know your teams well enough, you'll know the ones who you should be asking to do things that you've never done and would never do because you know that they have a knack for those particular problem areas that are just so unique that are so unique, but yet tie into their talents and can build them up to make them feel like, you know, Superman uh, in the workplace. So, but, but Linda, I completely agree with you saying, but always looking to provide a contrarian thought process or pattern to that. Where we're at next is, uh, and Linda, please follow us over there. I know you will. We're going to um, what your managers should do to conquer tough workplace 
conversations. So that's where we're headed next for our next deep dive, which actually, which actually started one minute ago. So if everyone's okay, let's follow into that room if you're able to. And I'll close this particular room in five, four, three, two, and one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work Cookie, a Seabock podcast. Don't forget to sign up at seabock.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from experts. Would it be a bad idea to make your most challenging workplace problems go away? Don't forget to check out our corporate, career boost, recruiter, and even student memberships at seabock.com.